From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. February is American Heart Month, celebrated each year to raise awareness of heart health and heart disease. On today's program, we'll discuss women's heart health and the connections between the heart and autoimmune diseases with the Mayo Clinic experts. And started looking into this deeper, and what we know is that the process of plaque building up in the heart arteries or atherosclerosis, yes, it's about cholesterol, blood pressure, and all of those things, but there's also a link to inflammation. Also on the program, the latest research on medical management versus surgery for heart disease. And what are the common health risks after surviving breast cancer? All that, along with a health minute from Vivian Williams, right after this. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Chives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Heart disease, it's still the number one killer of women in this country. In fact, ever since 1984, more women have died of heart disease than men. Amazing. Today on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll talk with a women's health expert, Dr. Rika Mancad. We'll find out if women have become more aware of their risk for heart disease in the past few years. We're going to talk about how the symptoms of heart disease are different in women than men and get her advice on how women can lead heart-healthy lives. Plus, we'll learn about the increased risk of heart disease and stroke for patients with rheumatoid arthritis and other autoimmune diseases. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Rekha Mankad. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Dr. Mankad, uh, are we doing better? Are more women recognizing the fact that heart disease is the disease that's most likely to kill them? Yes, we are actually doing better. And in the last few years, uh, the mortality rates for women with heart disease have dropped quite a bit. So actually, the number of women dying of heart disease compared to men dying of heart disease is actually pretty equal now. Okay, so I was wrong. <laughs> Aren't you women glad to hear that? Well, I, I mean, when you look at that figure, that 1984, um, that's a long time that women went uh, basically not even considering that they could have heart disease or die of heart attack. Um, that's a, that is still impressive to me. And it's, and it's true. And we have to remember that although I say that the numbers are equal as far as the number of people dying, we have to remember that heart disease is still less prevalent in women. So it still is more prevalent in men, meaning that there, it's more likely that a man is going to have heart disease. So when you look at the number of deaths, it still is important to recognize that in a disease that's less prevalent in women, we have equal numbers of deaths. So it is very important to recognize. But yeah, there was a period of time where no woman had any idea that the thing she was going to die of was actually heart disease. She was more worried about breast cancer. Absolutely. So why is it that heart disease is more prevalent in men? I know there is some protective of hormonal effect uh, and up until menopause, and then things start to equal out, don't they? That's exactly true. So uh, in younger women, so those who are premenopausal, the likely of having traditional coronary artery disease or plaque building up in the arteries. The arteries that supply the the heart heart muscle. muscle. You're right. That's less common. And you're right. Estrogen actually protects women from having that process develop. But as soon as a woman reaches her mid-50s, the occurrence of heart disease sort of skyrockets and essentially it Uh, equals that of men within sort of five years after menopause. 
But there are also some barriers to, to women receiving excellent care for heart disease, aren't there? Yeah, I think there still is this gap of knowledge of the recognition of heart disease being an important uh, risk factor for women's uh, symptoms and signs. So I think there's always that delay in diagnosis that we see, especially in younger women. I think both uh, providers and patients continue to say, well, yes, I understand that heart disease is the number one killer of women, but that's not going to happen to me personally. So individually, they don't recognize the risk, even though they may know the statistics. Recent article, and I read this and I have the quote here, sort of amazing to me. Studies show women having heart attacks wait more than 30% longer than men to go to the ER and experience a 20% longer wait time than men. True? Yeah, that's what we see. I mean, I think, again, it's very dependent on where you go and how experienced a center might be dealing with, you know, women and heart disease. But, yeah, I think certainly the wait time for women, women continue to think it's something else before they'll um, call an ambulance or ask to be taken in. And that sort of segues into the fact that the symptoms are a little bit less classic for women. So they think it's their stomach or they, you know, something they ate, something other than heart disease is what sort of drives them. And usually it's only after they talk to someone or they realize the symptoms aren't going away that they go, I better go get checked out. But they make their husband go right away. (laughs) Well, that's because men in general have the crushing... You know, weight on the chest type thing. Elephant and for, sitting on the chest. Yeah, and for women, it's I feel like I'm going to throw up, or I just feel clammy and gross. I I don't really quite feel right. I mean, that can cover a whole lot. It's they're non-specific symptoms, but we have to recognize that chest pain is actually one of the symptoms. It's a fairly common symptom, but it's not the predominant or only symptom, and it usually is not as severe. And it's associated with shortness of breath, nausea, feeling of unease. The pain may be in the back or limited to the shoulders. So it is different, and I think that's why there is this delay or maybe even confusion that develops, like, is this really my heart? Should should it be, you know, I get it checked out or not? All right. Are there unusual kinds of heart attacks in women that the women in this audience ought to be concerned about, ought to know about? Yeah. So there is a condition called spontaneous coronary artery dissection. So it's a heart attack that happens in young women. So these are typically the premenopausal women, although the range can be fairly broad as far as ages. And this is a woman who doesn't have the regular risk factors for that plaque that builds up in heart arteries. And what this condition is, is a tear of the uh, heart artery. So it decreases blood flow just like a regular heart attack does, but the reasons for it isn't due to a plaque that's rupturing. It's a tear in the artery. And that, again, happens in very young women. It can happen in 20- and 30-year-old women. So clearly not something that they are recognizing that could happen to them. we have any idea why this happens? We know that there's a link between this condition and another condition called fibromuscular dysplasia. So both of these uh, conditions show that the uh, vessel wall is friable, or at least it's some, something about that vessel wall fragile, is abnormal. Huh? Yeah, it's fragile. We don't know why. These tend to happen, these events happen during 
periods of extreme emotion or physical activity. So we've had women who had just gone out for a really long run or in a very heated argument, and they can have these episodes. And again, when a 20 or 30 year old is going into the hospital with chest pain, the last thing most people are thinking of is that it's a heart attack. But I assume if you get there in time, it's fixable? Yeah, it's very different than a regular heart attack because this tear in the artery can actually heal itself. So uh, it, first of all, you have to have a high index of suspicion to know that this might be the reason that that patient's having the heart attack. So you do do an angiogram like you would for any other heart attack. That's the dye test where you Correct. can actually see the tear in the artery. Correct. And But again, you have to have a high index of suspicion because if the artery is torn but things look good, it might be better not to do anything to that artery like a stent procedure. What about all of the other things that you're supposed to do for good heart health? How important is it to know what your numbers are and to know your cholesterol and those different things? Yeah, it's really important. You know, I think everybody needs to take ownership of their own health. So understanding what high blood pressure is or normal blood pressure, I think, is very important. Now, high blood pressure doesn't give you a symptom. So you'll only know if that's abnormal if you go in and get regular checkups to see if your blood pressure is elevated. Cholesterol numbers should be checked in your young adulthood and then repeated at certain intervals after that. So those are really important things to be able to have checked and to be able to follow to see how your risk changes over your lifetime. What do you think about the new blood pressure guidelines? Aren't they a little bit strict, 120 over 80 or less? I mean, you know, there are not that many people who are in that range, are there? There are uh, people that are in that range, and it sounds strict, but if you look at the data, I mean, that's where the benefit is, is to have those lower numbers. As soon as that number, the top number gets above 120, you start increasing your risk of heart attack and stroke. Um, yeah, And we had thought, well, maybe we don't need to be that stringent, but the most recent uh, documents and the guidelines have suggested that if you really want to be an optimal health, that that blood pressure be less than 120 over 80. You know, we have to be careful because as you get older, your blood pressure, I mean, it's much more common to have high blood pressure as we all get older. But even in the elderly, being stricter with blood pressure does have benefit. All right. So blood pressure uh, is important. Um, obviously, smoking is the first thing that, that women and men ought to do for, to protect their heart health. Absolutely. Okay. What about cholesterol? Is that, is, is that as important as we have thought? Yeah, it is important, um, and it remains something that we as cardiologists follow very closely. I think we do know it's more complex than the number by itself, so you have to take that into context up with other risk factors. We know people can have high uh, cholesterol and never have a cardiac event, and it's because of the makeup of that cholesterol is just healthier for that person. So, you know, as an isolated number, um, You have to be careful, but you take it in context with other risk factors as well. But certain people who have really high bad cholesterol, that's the LDL cholesterol, if it's really high, they could have a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia. Those people are at very high risk for cardiovascular or cerebrovascular events. But drugs work to lower that. Yes, they do. And we know that you should uh, lose weight and get active. What about sleep? Is sleep important for heart health? Sleep is very important for heart health because that's when we sort of reset. That's when we rejuvenate. So if we don't get enough sleep, and that does vary by person, you know, every person's a little bit different, but we're looking at somewhere to six to eight hours of sleep at night, and that's restful sleep. It really is a benefit for your heart health. 
All right, what's your favorite diet for uh, heart health? <laughs> um, so the Mediterranean diet is a, a really good diet and one that I think is achievable. But I will tell you that the recent literature is really sort of going towards a purely plant-based Vegetarian. diet. Yeah. I knew that she so was going to say that. Yes. <laughs> tell us about the Mediterranean diet. What's the difference between a plant-based diet and the Mediterranean diet? So the Mediterranean diet allows for fish. So that's the big difference. I mean, the the plant-based diet, it's no animal proteins at all. Chickens? No chicken? No. In the (laughs) plant-based, it's all plant. (laughs) But the Mediterranean chicken? uh, Well, I mean, it's not that you can't have it, but they tell you that what you should, where you should strive to get your protein is in fish or in legumes. So, you know, lentils and things like that is the best place to get your protein source. All right, and get active. Exercise is really important. It can certainly reduce your risk of a heart disease. Yeah, exercise is very important. Anything else we missed? Uh, Diabetes is another risk factor for heart disease. Huge uh, risk factors. Is it true that uh, half of the people, 50% or more of the people who go into the emergency room with a heart attack have diabetes? I'm not sure it's quite that high, but But it's it's quite high. And that's important. And that goes along with a condition called metabolic syndrome, where you have an elevated blood pressure, some bad cholesterol numbers, and elevated blood sugar, and carry that fat in your middle, the spare tire, we say. All right, so you got to know your blood pressure. you got to know your cholesterol. Keep your weight down. Exercise. Exercise, <laughs> yep. And don't smoke. Yeah, that's probably the most important one. Women's Heart Health with Mayo Clinic cardiologist, heart specialist, Dr. Rekha Mancad. You know what we've got coming up? We're going to find out about an increased risk for cardiovascular disease in people with rheumatoid arthritis or an other autoimmune disease. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Now, in addition to being a women's heart health expert, Dr. Rika Mancat is also director of the Cardio-Rheumatology Clinic at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Even I didn't know there was such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we recently we did an interview, a cardio-oncologist, right. so cancer and our heart. So what about rheumatology and our heart? What is this? What's the link? So uh, I'll sort of give you some historical uh, details first. Actually, this has been identified in the rheumatology literature for decades, where patients with uh, specifically rheumatoid arthritis and lupus were noted to have more heart disease risk than uh, patients without those conditions. So that had been reported in epidemiologic studies for years, but nobody had really talked about it. So I actually just accidentally happened upon this when I was sent a patient by one of the rheumatologists, and I thought, why are they sending me a patient with rheumatoid arthritis to assess their heart? And then I started looking at the literature, and I thought, wow, there is a link, and started looking into this deeper. And what we know is that the process of plaque building up in the heart arteries or atherosclerosis, yes, it's about cholesterol, blood pressure, and all of those things, but there's also a link to inflammation. And we see that that process of plaque building up in the arteries, actually inflammation can get that plaque to get started and to progress. And this is why, uh, just as cardiologists, we do check inflammatory markers uh, frequently when we're evaluating somebody's heart disease risk, and that blood test is called a a C-reactive protein. So patients with rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, and many of the others, those are all inflammatory autoimmune conditions. So it makes sense why 
these patients have increased risk of heart disease. They have a constant elevated level, level of inflammation. It might be all the time or it might just happen in flares. And there's been a lot of studies done looking at the link between these conditions. Well, when I first heard it, it makes sense to me that if you've got lupus or fibromyalgia or arthritis, that you're not as active as you could be or should be. Mm-hmm. And so that would be the reason why you have heart disease. But that's not it. it just, no. I would imagine it contributes, though. Yes, it does. And, that, and that's a very important contribution because patients with those conditions do tend to be less physically active. Um, and therefore, they sort of augment their risk. So they already have the risk related to their condition by itself. And then that risk mm-hmm. can be further enhanced because they're less active. By being less active, they may be more overweight. Uh, by being more overweight and less active, their blood pressure may be higher and their cholesterol may be more abnormal. So all of those do tie in. But the disease itself has an independent risk. Remind our audience again what we mean when we talk about an autoimmune disease. So these are diseases where your own body sort of um, is destroying tissue. So there is antibodies that for some reason develop and destroys tissue. For rheumatoid arthritis, the symptoms are typically in the joints. Uh, So most of the symptoms are in the joints, and that's where the inflammation is sort of visibly we see it attacking. But that inflammation is seen throughout the body, and that's why the heart is affected. And in lupus, multiple organs can be involved in that condition as well. So uh, in all of these uh, rheumatologic conditions, there's psoriatic arthritis, there's systemic sclerosis, there's many of them, and they've all been looked at, and they all appear to have this increased risk for heart disease. So what should patients, and I'm sure you counsel them on this, if they've got a some sort of disease, uh, that whole spectrum of rheumatologic diseases, what can they do to prevent heart disease? Well, I think the first thing is uh, education. So they need to understand that this risk exists, and they should talk with their physicians about ways to become more heart healthy. Uh, I do see a lot of patients with these conditions, and one of the mainstays that I do is discuss the link between the diseases, and then we look at the things we can fix. So we look at the cholesterol, we look at the blood pressure, we talk about ways to get more aerobically fit and healthier uh, in general with diet and exercise. And then we talk about ways that the actual disease can also be modified. So if the disease isn't under control, isn't under control and they have more inflammation, I need to talk to my rheumatology colleagues about how to get that inflammation under better control. So the combination of things needs to take place to decrease their risk. Do they need to be screened periodically, patients with rheumatologic diseases? Well, so we don't have any guidelines, uh, I'll tell you that, although the most recent guidelines for the prevention of heart disease did include rheumatologic autoimmune inflammatory conditions as an at-risk group. And it actually, it's called a risk enhancer. So if you have one of those conditions, you sort of look at the big picture with that patient and say, well, their risk is going to be higher by having that condition. But we don't really know, should we be evaluating them every couple of years, every five years? We don't know. Um, what I typically do is when I get sent to patients, usually because they have some other traditional risk factor for heart disease. So the combination of the rheumatologic condition plus a traditional risk factor elevates it enough that typically the rheumatologists want me to weigh in on ways to improve that risk profile. Nice. Mayo Clinic Heart Specialist, Director of the Cardio-Rheumatology Clinic, Dr. Rekha Mancad. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll discuss the ischemia trial, the latest research on using medications instead of surgery for treating heart disease. And what health risks are a concern for breast cancer survivors. Coming up, a health minute with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network.
Hi, I'm Vivian Williams for the Mayo Clinic News Network. The Food and Drug Administration has approved a drug derived from fish oil for some patients with elevated triglyceride levels to reduce the risk of heart attack, stroke, and other cardiovascular events. The drug contains a certain type of omega-3 fatty acid and can be used as an add-on therapy for people on a statin. So does this mean you should take fish oil supplements? Does fish oil really help reduce your risk of heart disease? Well, yes, says cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. He says first, you probably ought to eat about six ounces of fish, such as salmon or mackerel, three times a week. Almost a pound of fish a week would be the ideal, but most people don't do that. Now, fish oil is a source of omega-3 fatty acids, which are essential for muscle function, including that of your heart. Omega-3s help reduce the risk of heart attacks, high triglycerides, and high blood pressure. Dr. Kopitsky says that people who have high cholesterol and triglycerides over 200 and people who are vegan or don't eat fish should consider taking omega-3 supplements. He says a pill doesn't take the place of a healthy lifestyle. It has to be in addition to it. He says taking an omega-3 supplement plus regular exercise, not smoking, getting sufficient sleep, eating at least five servings of fruits and veggies a day, and if you can, eating fatty fish, such as as, again, salmon or mackerel, can improve your heart health. If you can do a little bit over time, it's been shown to help tremendously, says Dr. Kopetsky. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Well, there's new evidence that patients with stable CAD, that's coronary artery disease, and we'll explain a little bit more about that momentarily. Patients with stable CAD may be managed without stents or without a cabbage, a coronary artery bypass grafting. And that is to say that optimal medical therapy alone may be the best option for patients with stable angina, that is mild chest pain as the result of CAD or coronary artery disease. Here to talk to us about the latest findings is Mayo Clinic cardiologist, that's a heart specialist, Dr. Todd Miller. Welcome to the program. It's good to see you. Uh, Thank you, Tracy. So, Dr. Miller, they called this the ischemia trial. So explain that term and also what we mean by the term angina and and coronary artery disease. Well, let's start first with coronary artery disease. So beginning around age 20, based on autopsy studies from soldiers from Korea and the Vietnam Wars, it was known that plaque development starts at that age in uh, people who live in the United States. That's crud inside the artery. Crud inside the artery. And it first starts out as a little fat deposition in the artery, and you would not be able to detect that with any of our current techniques. But over time, that fat buildup continues, and then it can start to calcify. And once it starts to calcify, we have methods now where you can image that and see the plaque buildup developing. So for... Men who are 50, men are usually developing this process at a more rapid rate than women. When men are 50, uh, about half the men in the country will have detectable plaque buildup. And is this whole process called atherosclerosis? This is called atherosclerosis, hardening of the arteries, if you will. And once you start to develop enough plaque so that it blocks up the vessel, occludes the vessel by 50 to 70%, then you start to impair blood flow. So that's where the scheme, that's where the term ischemia comes from. So you don't impair blood flow at rest when you're 50 to 70% narrowed, but with 
exertion and exercise, you would start to impair blood flow with that type of narrowing. The uh, term, formal term for coronary artery disease would be if you have 50 to 70 percent blockage of the artery. Then it's defined as clinically significant coronary artery disease. Would that be in all three? Are there are three main arteries, coronary arteries, or could it be just one? It could be just one. So tell us about the study, the ischemia study. All right. So as background for this study, this type of study has been performed for several years, going back 50 years. And the initial trials compared just medical therapy to bypass surgery. And uh, around the 1970s, seven large studies were performed, and they showed very little evidence that bypass either improves survival or reduces heart attack risk compared to medical therapy alone. So this concept that trying to fix the arteries by revascularizing them, doing bypass, has been around for a long time, and in the chronic setting, it's been difficult to show that uh, you can improve longevity or reduce heart attack risk. There were certain subsets of patients with the worst plaque who had a little bit of benefit. And then following that, we've had half a dozen previous studies that used just stents alone compared to medical therapy. And also, those studies reached a similar conclusion where it was hard to show that longevity or heart attack risk were improved by doing stents. So the dilemma was people criticized those studies because in many of those studies, even though patients had blockages, they may not have had the impairment to blood flow, the ischemia. And it's been known from a lot of other studies that ischemia is a marker of patients who are at highest risk. So if you can demonstrate ischemia, which you can do with stress tests, you can show impaired blood flow and those patients are at higher risk. And so the ischemia trial was specifically designed to recruit patients who had significant ischemia on their stress test. That's the differing part of it from prior studies. Ischemia, lack of blood flow. Lack of blood flow. To the heart muscle. And not just a little bit. They had to have substantial ischemia. More than 10% of the heart muscle had to have impaired blood flow. So they tried to recruit the highest risk patients to see it in this high-risk group would stents improve outcome. And how many patients did you have? Uh, worldwide, there were over 5,000. So this is the by far the biggest study of coronary artery disease with an intervention ever performed. Previous studies, the largest they ever uh, achieved was around uh, a little over 2,000. And how did you divide them out? Um, they were divided out by patients were randomized. So they had a stress test that showed a large area of ischemia, then they were randomized, meaning they were their treatment was selected by a computer. Either they received medical therapy alone or they received a stent. And what was the bottom line? What did you find out? The and by the way, Mayo was part of the study, weren't you? You participated? Right. right. Mayo was a part of the study. Uh, out of the 5,000 patients, we contributed to uh, 50 of the randomized patients worldwide. So we contributed a lot of patients compared to most other medical centers. So that was good for Mayo. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the major study findings were that outcomes, again, were the same between the two treatment groups. So the group of patients who received optimal medical therapy did as well in terms of survival and heart attack risk uh, compared to patients who also received stents in addition to those treatments. So that would suggest Mm -hmm. that we're overusing stents. Sounds a little controversial there, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) And your hesitation. (laughs) It's going to depend on who you talked about that. But I think I would word it as saying that the benefit of stents has probably been overstated. Okay, There's still reasons to use stents. 
people can be on good medical therapy and they can have ongoing symptoms that aren't well controlled with a medication. And in that setting, the stents can help improve the symptoms. And stents are clearly beneficial for improving outcome uh, in the setting of acute heart attack. But probably even the chronic settings, some who are going to be very critical of the profession would say they're probably being overused in the setting of chronic coronary disease. But you ha- if you have the stents, you're still going to be instructed as the patient going forward then to go back to some of the traditional medical therapy that that other group used that wasn't stented. That's exactly right. And so what are those precautions or going forward, what's that lifestyle? Well, even if a patient who has chronic coronary artery disease gets a stent or not, the lifestyle measures, which are regular exercise and diet, are clearly the most beneficial for lowering risk when combined with correct medications. And the correct medications in patients with established coronary artery disease are aspirin, that recommendation no longer applies to the general public, but people who have established coronary artery disease should be on low-dose aspirin, and clearly they should be on a statin drug like uh, uh, Lipitor. So that would be optimal medical therapy. That's optimal medical therapy. So just to, to make sure we understand, you had two groups of patients. One group, uh, and all of them had ischemia, significant uh, angina, chest pain and ischemia, meaning that part of their heart muscle was without a blood supply. And one group, you gave optimal medical therapy, and you just uh, described that. And the other group got either a stent or coronary artery bypass surgery, Right. Correct. And after three years, there was no difference between the two groups with respect to what you call cardiovascular events, and that means death, myocardial infarction or or heart attack, hospitalization for unstable angina, heart failure, cardiac arrest. Absolutely right. So bottom line is uh, optimum medical therapy, probably best for patients with stable angina and not a lot of chest pain. Yes. Um, there was one uh, thing I did read in the study, however, is that the patients in the second group who got either a stent or a coronary artery bypass surgery had less chest pain. That's correct. So the quality of life indicators, both overall quality of life, how people rated how they were doing in general, as well as their angina frequency, were better in the group that got treated with stent or bypass surgery. But what you need to remember is that Nobody was blinded to which treatment they were getting. They knew that they were getting stents or bypass surgery. And once people knew that, know that they're getting a certain treatment, there's a tremendous placebo effect from that treatment, and that could have influenced the quality of life results. So if you think you're going to get better because of an intervention, you do. That's saying it exactly correct. (laughs) All right. The results of the ischemia trial are in, and conservative management of patients with stable angina seems to be just as good as invasive surgery. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Todd Miller. Okay. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Tom. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn about the most common health risks for breast cancer survivors. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in American women, except for skin cancer. Today, there are more than three and a half million breast cancer survivors in the United States, and that includes women that are still being treated and those who have already been treated. Survival rates for breast cancer are better than ever. That's great news. The number of women dying from breast cancer has dropped over 40% since 1989. Wow. However, as breast cancer survivors live longer, their risk of developing other serious medical conditions 
also increases. And joining us on the phone from Mayo Clinic in Arizona is medical oncologist, that's cancer specialist, Dr. Bassam Sanbal. Welcome to the program, Dr. Sanbal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, Dr. Sanbal. So uh, the good news, a lot of women in this country have survived breast cancer, some three and a half million. And I think you recently studied a large group of survivors. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's right. As you mentioned, really, over the last uh, specifically two decades, we got much better in terms of the systemic therapies, and that include uh, hormonal therapy and uh, chemotherapy for these women. And in addition to that, improvement in surgical methods and radiation. Uh, that's why, I mean, we're we're at a point where uh, I think about it like as a luxury, actually, that we're talking about discussing other causes of death besides breast cancer in those women who have the diagnosis. So a lot of women are now surviving more and more. Um, and the question now that comes up, uh, how are these women dying from their diagnosis? So what we did in this study, it's what we call a population-based study. So utilizing one of the databases that are available to look at a woman with a diagnosis of breast cancer. So we included uh, almost uh, three, three quarter of a million, so 750,000 uh, 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 pa- patients with uh, breast cancer that were diagnosed between 2000 and 2015 uh, with a retrospective study and looking, asking uh, the question, what is the most common cause of death in these women? So, um, for, so for these example, are, sorry, these, so these are all women who had no evidence of disease. They had been previously treated for breast cancer and they were, uh, they were cu- essentially cured. Not necessarily. So they were diagnosed. We have the documentation that they were diagnosed and then we're following along and seeing how are they dying. Are they dying from the breast cancer itself because it's recurred or never cured? Or they're dying from other causes. Are they dying from heart problems or stroke or other things? All right. And what did you find out? We found out actually that, uh, first of all, the most of the deaths that happened are happening really in, in those women are between the year one and five from the diagnosis. And uh, we found that the death from the breast cancer is actually going down as we go away from the diagnosis. By that, I mean within the first 10 years of diagnosis. So the most common cause of death is actually from the breast cancer. But then when we go away from that, so beyond 10 years of diagnosis, the breast cancer deaths are actually going down. So for example, between year five and 10, the breast cancer breast cancer itself was responsible for uh, death for, uh, for about a third of these patients. But then we have um, almost uh, uh, almost a third of these patients are dying from other uh, diseases that are not really cancer, for example, heart disease and stroke. And then after 10 years of diagnosis, uh, we have the most common cause of death in these women is actually uh, non-breast cancer. So it's not really the breast cancer. Those women are dying from heart disease, uh, COPD, Alzheimer's, stroke. So other causes that we really see uh, in the general population uh, itself. So, are, are you able to tease out that the reason why after 10 years post-treatment, the heart disease or the Alzheimer's or the stroke, that that is con- that that those conditions were contributed to because of their cancer treatment, or is it is that not the case? That's a very good question. I, I think that's one of the limitations to this study and all uh, other studies uh, which are observational, we call them. I mean, we, we can look at associations, but we cannot 
specifically say that this is the causality or that this is what causes this. But uh, we can hypothesize and really say, well, probably this is what happened because one of the one of the things might we might say, well, I mean, those those patients are dying from the uh, heart problems, strokes, and things like that, like the general population. But what we did is to kind of delineate that whether they are at higher risk compared to the general population or not. We compared those women with uh, women in 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 the general population who do not have. A breast cancer diagnosis in the past, and we found that actually, yeah, there is a higher risk for uh, heart disease and stroke in those women. And to get, go back to your point, I, I do think, and uh, we do think in our team, that probably some of those treatments that those women um, uh, received helped them to kind of decrease the risk for, for, for dying from the, 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 the disease itself, from the breast cancer, but maybe increased a little bit. Uh, the, the risk for uh, for for dying from uh, heart disease and other things. So, and do you, th- do you think you can blame that on the chemotherapy in most instances? Because uh, uh, you know we haven't, at least up to this point, had targeted therapy where you were just treating the cancer. You treat the whole individual, which is the, what the term systemic means. So it damages not just the cancer in your breast, but other parts of your body. Right. So uh, that's. Uh, that in part due to the chemotherapy because over the last two decades, I mean, we just not have uh, just newer therapy. What we also have, uh, we we learned more about the therapies that we already know about. What, by that I mean we know how to optimize therapy. We know that for some women, less is actually better and is not harmful. So we know, for example, uh, anthracyclines, uh, some of the chemotherapies that we've been utilizing in, in those uh, patients, uh, known as, and, and, and some women know, call them as the red devil because the, it's, it's kind of look reddish uh, chemotherapy. So uh, that, that chemotherapy, for example, is associated with a higher risk of, of heart problems. So that's why right now we know that in in a lot of those women, we don't really need that anthracycline. We can utilize other drugs. Anthracycline is needed for specific population of women. And then, so that's systemic therapy or chemotherapy. And also we learned, for example, about targeted therapy and how to utilize it uh, better. For example, the uh, Herceptin is one of the uh, directed therapies or targeted therapies. We know that it is associated with some heart problems. In addition to that, we know that uh, for radiation, uh, we now know that there there were multiple studies looking at uh, how less might be better for those women because we know that uh, radiating the left breast is associated with a risk of heart problems at the long run. And there have been s- some studies right now asking the question, well, can we decrease the radiation from, for example, five weeks to less radiation? It's called hypofractionation, which is about three weeks of radiation. And in some women, yes, we can do that. And and in addition to that, for example, uh, utilizing better techniques, for example, in Mayo Clinic, we have the proton uh, beam radiation instead of photon, so that's kind of more targeted, not really causing more problems to the heart. So all of these things really play into the, uh, to the decision process. 
So still the most common cause of death 10 years after diagnosis is due to the breast cancer? After 10 years, no. It's no, actually, before, up until 10 years. Up until 10 years, yes, it and, is true. And then after 10 years, a higher risk of death from Alzheimer's, heart disease, and non-breast cancers. Exactly. Dr. Bassam Sanbal, more women than ever have survived breast cancer, but those women are at increased risk for other serious medical conditions. Dr. Sanbal, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.